The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. So the reading today is um, actually um, a longer passage, so we are going to invite you to take a seat if you'd like. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Great. And we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 5, 1 to Exodus chapter 6, um, verses 13. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. 
and with a strong hand he will deliver them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I, will, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, who the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Please join me in prayer. Our great God, we have a lot this morning to be thankful for. Um, just waking up, um, seeing the beauty of nature, being able to gather among your people. We also think of some specific situations. Lord, we thank you for the recent marriage of John and Ashley Kratchmer. We ask that you would be richly blessing them now on their honeymoon. We ask that um, you would bind them together, that their marriage would be a thing of beauty to proclaim your name to the world. And Lord, we also want to thank you for Nancy Formasano and her 90th birthday tomorrow. God, we, um, we ask that you would encourage her. We ask that you would give her great joy and hope as she remembers that your promises to your people, they don't dwindle and die out when we get old. They're just beginning. And that is very, very exciting. And Lord, we thank you for Ron and Alma. We thank you for how you've used them so, so powerfully in our midst. They have been servants, the servants we needed these years. Um, and Lord, we, we thank you for relationship with them. We thank you for their friendship and how they have they have uh, poured into so many people here. Lord, we thank you for how you have used them in this place and how you have used this place in their lives as well. And we pray that the ground that's been gained will, will be solidified and as they transition to a new church. We ask that we will all just be able to look back and see the story of your faithfulness even in this departure that uh, many of us wish was not the case. Um, so we do thank you for your goodness, God, that we see all around us. 
But Lord, there are also hard things in our lives, things that we're not quite sure how to thank you for, though we know we ought to. There are things that are difficult to process, difficult to know how to face each day. And so we turn to that thought and we ask that you would inform us from your word. We ask that you would minister to us like only the surgeon of our souls can. We ask that you would show us Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. I've got a friend who's really into college basketball. And he tells me that, you know, a good coach he tries to win as many games as possible. That's a good coach. But a great coach will sometimes strategically lose games. Lose games, I ask. That, that doesn't sound right. Well, he explains sometimes you need to practice new plays in real game settings. Or sometimes you need to rest players so that they'll be fully healed before the tournament. Or maybe you want to conserve momentum so that the team peaks at the right time. Sometimes you move players around to test their capabilities and allow them to mature. And sometimes you just want to save your best weapons for the surprise times when it really counts. And so for a coach who can play that long game, such a loss really isn't a loss at all. It's just a hidden win. Well, today we're going to see that the divine strategist, whose wisdom is far greater than any coach or general or chess master, he is even more not to be judged rashly, but he's to be trusted, even when trusting him seems to make matters worse. At the end of Exodus 4, Moses and Aaron and all the elders of the people, they were on the same page. They believed the plan God had revealed that, yeah, let's go with that. They trusted that he had seen their affliction and slavery, and they bowed their heads and they worshipped. And so then off they go, and they get an audience with the most powerful man in the world, expecting God to do great things. But then comes this wake-up call. Wait a minute. Pharaoh doesn't respect them. He mocks them and their God. And he responds with greater brutality against the people. This sure seems like a loss. How could a divinely authorized mission of deliverance lead to greater suffering? Some people might be tempted to ask, with a God like this, who needs enemies? And maybe you've felt that same way. Maybe when you've tried to speak of your faith and fall flat on your face. Maybe when you've tried to defend the weak or represent truth or to put yourself out there in some, some way of sacrificial service, a way that you knew was close to the heart of God, and yet he didn't powerfully work through you. And it felt like it was all for nothing, and it left you and maybe others in a worse place. So what went wrong? Well, we'll see that actually nothing did, except for Moses' expectations were out of place. God's purposes don't always come about in the manner that we expect them to, and he doesn't promise to do things in our timing or in the way that we consider easy. So where do we start in making sense of God's hidden wins when on their face we would just judge them as losses? First, let's note that God allows his enemies to have their day. 
God allows his enemies sometimes to display just how opposed they are to his good purposes. So in chapter 5, verse 1, um, the action gets started. We hear this edict for the first time. Moses says, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold to me a feast in the wilderness. Now before we get into it, one thing that could trip us up, is this a deceitful request? We know from the previous chapters that God's intention all along is that the people are going to be completely free. Moses is going to lead them out of slavery, not just a three days excursion. And yet, in chapter 3, God gave Moses this very approach. He said, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So those words are repeated verbatim by Moses in chapter 5 verse 3. Well, it seems that two things are happening here. First, we're given a glimpse into an ancient Middle Eastern bargaining process. So it would have been offensive to state too boldly such a, a demand like, yeah, free all of us, okay? We're just, we're just done. That would have been offensive. So first, a smaller request is asked for. And once that's granted, then the larger request can be expanded upon. So it's very similar actually to in the book of Esther. If you remember, Esther gains an audience with the king and she doesn't immediately ask for the deliverance of her people. Instead, she asks, um, can you come, can you and Haman come to a banquet that I'm going to throw? So the king's like, yes, but all the while he knows that she has another request and, and he's asking her, what's, but what, what is it that you want? And then it, it takes time for her because she's trying to be super respectful, it takes time for her to come out with it. So Pharaoh almost certainly understood that this initial request was a part of a larger negotiation for the freedom of the Hebrews. And that's probably why he responded so harshly because it actually wouldn't have been that strange of a request for servants to just take some time off to make an offering to their gods. Uh, archaeologists have found Egyptian records that show that workers were frequently absent, and for this very reason, to make offerings to their gods that was allowable in many circumstances. So, this veiled request is par for the course in ancient Middle Eastern negotiations, but also it's just a question of working from the lesser to the greater, you know, it's, it's like a test. If, if um, Pharaoh wouldn't even entertain this lesser request, then of course he's not going to set the people free. So God had told Moses in chapter 4 that this was going to be a process, and only after Pharaoh had refused, then would Moses give the more direct command, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. But Pharaoh was not interested in a process. He came out swinging hard, against these despised slaves and their unknown God. And his response is important for us to note because it's going to uh, play out across the next 10 chapters, really. He says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Notice that this is not just an honest confession of ignorance on Pharaoh's part. He's not saying like, well, if I could just find your God in the official catalog of deities, then it would be okay. But unfortunately, our HR policy prevents me from allowing time off for unknown gods. No, this is an expression of denigration. He is, he is mocking the Hebrews' God. He's saying, I don't acknowledge Yahweh. He has no standing in my eyes. What credibility does he have that I should fear him? 
So keep in mind that Pharaoh himself was considered a god. He was considered a manifestation of both the Egyptian god Horus and uh, also Amun-Ra. So he would have deeply resented the implication that he needed to listen up to the demands of another god. But Pharaoh speaks better than he realizes when he says, I do not know Yahweh. There's irony there. And the Exodus narrative is going to go out of its way to just relish Pharaoh's education in the chapters that follow. Oh yes, he will learn about Yahweh. But for now, Pharaoh's dismissal of God's first message to him feels to us just like this insurmountable obstacle. You know, this Pharaoh is very shrewd in how he dismantles Moses' efforts. He doesn't get caught up in an argument. He just shifts the focus. Let's talk about your labor. So this delegation of elders had come with Moses into Pharaoh's court. And so he's just like, hey, Moses, why are you taking the people away from their work? And he says, the people of the land are numerous, and you make them rest from their burdens. Notice he calls them the people of the land. That's just a subtle reminder to Moses, like, the Hebrews are right where they belong. He's really taking control of the conversation from Moses, and he's making Moses look pathetic. Moses came to him with this sacred edict from the divine, thus says Yahweh. And in verse 10, Pharaoh responds by having it announced, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. The straw for the bricks, it, was, it worked like rebar or like wire mesh does for concrete. So without it, the bricks would have been a lot more brittle and, and would have broken more easily. So it's just clear that Pharaoh cares a lot more about putting the Hebrews in their place than he does even about the quality or the efficiency of the work. And to top it off, he, he calls God a liar. He says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words apparently refusing to even entertain the possibility that um, Moses and Aaron really did have a message from Yahweh. When God's enemies have their day, we're often not told why it had to be that way. But that doesn't change the fact that when God's servants decide to no longer cower in fear, but instead they take bold steps to honor the truth, that trust in God is never wasted no matter what the outward result looks like. I think of a, a battered woman who finally stops protecting the one who beats her up, and yet in the moment, it, it, it feels like she's losing everything. I think of an employee who takes a stand against a corrupt boss, knowing full well that they may be the only one to do so, and they may just get fired and quickly forgotten. Or this can even happen in a societal level. In Romania in 1989, the fearless reformed pastor, Laszlo Tokish, he openly told the truth about the communist brutalities. And he challenged his congregation and eventually the whole nation not to put up with the dictator's puppeteering of the church and murder of their countrymen. But Laszlo wouldn't even get a response that, you know, eventually it would grow into the overthrow of the communist regime. But first what he had to go through. His utilities were cut off. His food rations were taken away. His father was arrested. Government thugs broke in and intimidated his pregnant wife. Many of the, the peaceful hymn-singing protesters outside his apartment were brutalized or even killed. So it would have been easy in those dark days to wonder, is, is all this for nothing? 
But Ephesians 5 tells us clearly, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He was on the path of obedience. So whether we're talking about Romania in 1989 or Egypt in 1450 BC or today in your own circumstances, obeying God often results in a time of greater darkness before the light comes. God's enemies are emboldened when they see these feeble people of God trying to do something. They grow angry, they grow emboldened, but at the same time, they are also exposing themselves for what they really are. God here is drawing the intentions of Pharaoh's, out, Pharaoh's heart. He's drawing them out for everyone to see in plain sight. Now, should Moses or the elders of the people really have been surprised at this outcome for this first encounter? I mean, back in chapter 3, God had told Moses explicitly, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So Moses should have known that the deliverance would not be immediate. And we should know that that will often be the case in our troubles too. Darkness will have its appointed day to show its true colors. But saving faith doesn't view God as absent or unfaithful just because his enemies seem to be gaining strength and momentum for a moment. Another truth to keep in mind when trusting God seems to make things worse. Remember that God forms his servants amid opposition. He builds them up. He equips them in the midst of opposition. So God uses dark times to shape and grow his servants. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw God take unwilling Moses and set him on this course to confront Pharaoh. And Moses was just terrified of this role, wasn't he? And we saw God patiently engage with him, all of his fears and objections, and God provided him with the help he needed, the miraculous signs. But even that, would we have, even after that, would we have said that, yeah, Moses is good to go, he's ready. Eh, he, he didn't look quite ready. And, um, you know, when you think about what Moses would become later in Exodus, he would be the deliverer, the, the leader, the lawgiver, the, the intercessor. He's still not quite there, is he? So he's still on a trajectory of growth. But after this first encounter, um, well, th this is what was needed. You see, he runs off. He runs off with his tail between his legs. But that's not the end of the story. Well, before we think about what God is doing in Moses, we should ask, did Moses fail here? When we feel like God has failed us, it's, it's often also a time when maybe we feel that we failed but we're confused as to why God let us fail if so much was at stake. Did Moses fail at the job that God had given him to do? Well, he got the basic message across, right? But there are some ways in which he didn't quite stick to the script. First, in verse 3, after Pharaoh rebuffs their request, Moses added this reason. He said, lest God fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. God had never threatened his people in such a way. He had, he had never told Moses to give that reason. But maybe Moses thinks that a comment like that would just end, lend some extra weight to his request. But maybe that's exactly what pushed Pharaoh over the edge. Uh, maybe it had the opposite effect. It, he felt pushed into a corner. So Moses added something. But Moses also omitted something that God had told him to do. Back in uh, chapter 4, verse 21, 
God said, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But Moses simply backed down and exited after Pharaoh uh, gave this edict about straw. So he should have pressed in. He should have commanded Pharaoh's attention with the miraculous signs that he'd been given. So yes, Moses had failed. When we relax the word of God, when we leave off of it, off some of it, or, or if we add something to it, just based on our own reasoning, like, oh, I think this might be a little more helpful if we do it this way, well, then we set ourselves up for failure. And then, like Moses, it's all too easy for us to think, well, the word of God has failed. Has it? See, part of the trajectory of growth for Moses here is from being a man who loosely follows God's word into, starting in chapter 7, a man who takes himself out of the equation and does exactly what God's word lays out. So this failure needed to happen in order to get him there. The Lord doesn't rebuke Moses here. He, he deviated from the plan, but um, all God has to say to him is words that are looking forward, uh, reminding him of the promises, looking to the future. Because while Moses has, in a sense, failed, this hiccup isn't a hiccup for God. It was actually a called-for step in the process of what Yahweh was doing with Pharaoh. So it's a time for Moses to grow in trusting God's words. It's also a time for Moses to grow thick-skinned in the face of rejection and misunderstanding and the blame-shifting from his own people. Pharaoh really knew what he was doing with this um, command to, to take away the straw. He was very intentionally separating the people from their leader. He wouldn't have to arrest Moses. He wouldn't have to execute Moses. The people themselves, they'd, they'd handle that guy. He'd just leave them to the mercy of the embittered slaves whose lives he had made harder. And the foremen are angry, and they, they call Moses and Aaron essentially dangerous frauds. They say, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, it's understandable why they're angry, right? And, and we who have never experienced brutal forced labor, we, we probably have no idea the, the pain of the taking away the straw and, and the, the burden that that added to an already downtrodden, hopeless people. There are seven references in chapter 5 to hard labor. So the point of the added misery is really belabored in the text. So why would God allow Moses to become the source of pain to his own people like that? Have you ever tried to do the right thing, but it ended up causing pain for people that you cared about in ways that you couldn't have known about ahead of time? How did you deal with that emotionally? Were you able to entrust it to God? I know personally I have a very, very hard time getting on with my life if my words or my actions have caused unintended hurt for my family. And then it can be hard to pray in the days that follow. I'm kind of like throwing a silent temper tantrum at God um, because he could have made things play out differently, but he didn't, and I don't understand why. Well, Moses didn't react well either. He said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Now he's not calling God evil here. He's, he's saying, why did you bring disaster on these people? And he says, why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. A few observations here. First, isn't it amazing that the holy and righteous and omnipotent God in putting together this book 
to guide us in relationship with him, he includes these words from Moses to him. And Moses is speaking hastily. Moses is speaking out of bitterness. And God wants us to see those words. And how, do, how does God, our God, our, this consuming fire, how does he react to accusations like this? He forbears it. He doesn't lash out at, at, at Moses' foolishness. He doesn't put him in his place. He just turns Moses' attention away from his complaints to God's promises. And I hope that that's comforting to you. That Moses, even in his failure, even in his bitterness toward God in his failure, Moses does the right thing. He goes to God. He turns to the God that he doesn't understand instead of turning away from him in some sort of arrogant assumption that God is inadequate. Which approach do you take? You will never be punished for turning to God and venting about your frustrations with how he's ordering things. Job wasn't punished. Moses wasn't punished. The psalmist wasn't. Elijah wasn't. Jeremiah wasn't. Habakkuk wasn't. When trusting God seems to make matters worse, tell him about it. Resolve to go back to him in prayer. Otherwise, what's the other option? You'll be like the rocky ground in Jesus' parable of the, so- of the soils. You would receive the seed of God's word joyfully enough, but the seed wasn't able to take root. And then when troubles came along, the seed dies and, and you fall away. Would that be Moses and the Israelites? Will that be us? The surprise of today's passage isn't Pharaoh's response at all. The surprise is Israel's response. Because if you don't know the Lord, then you won't trust him when you can't work out what he's doing. And when it differs from your will, you'll just grumble and you'll turn away. So the delay in the fulfillment of God's promises, that's what reveals people's hearts. How do we respond in the time of delay? Do we quickly doubt and complain And because of that danger of turning away from God instead of to God in our times of deep disappointment, the company we keep in those times becomes a question of the utmost importance. At the end of chapter 4, Moses and Aaron's faith was contagious to the, the doubting Israelites. They convinced them, God is active. He has spoken. He's going to do something. But here at the end of chapter 5, kind of the opposite has happened. And the people's unbelief in God's promises is, is somewhat contagious to Moses. Even after God re-ups his promises in chapter 6, Moses still seems like he's back at square one. He's trusting only in himself, and, though he's, and he's left with this haunting question of, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Because when you don't see God's promises coming to fruition in the way that you expected, it's really dangerous when you're surrounded by people who likewise can't see it and who aren't willing to risk anything to trust God. People for whom preserving physical safety and clear provision, that's the key thing for them. That's the camp that is not going to encourage you to trust God no matter what. So this was a time when Moses would have to learn to hear God's revealed words. He's going to have to hear them as infinitely more weighty than even the unified voice of the people that Moses would like to please. And he does learn that lesson. 
And the Israelites as a group aren't going to be spoken to or even considered in the text again until the time of the Passover. Their faith was not able to function during these these times of Moses' encounters with Pharaoh. Um, their faith wouldn't be awakened until after they were freed. But their opposition to Moses had a place in God's plan. It was used to help firm up Moses' faith muscles, to make him steady for the challenges that were ahead. So God forms his servants amid the apparent failure of facing opposition. And another purpose to that apparent failure, to, to these times where you don't understand what God is doing, a purpose is that God reveals himself amid darkness. God reveals his own character most brilliantly against a dark backdrop. Our God, in his sovereign wisdom, he's never doing just one thing, right? We have eyes for one thing, for our, for our own circumstances, but God has a multiplicity of goals. And we tend to see, okay, we can see he's going to deliver his people, he's going to make himself known to Egypt, or you bring those forward, he's, he's going to deliver us from adverse circumstances, he's going to make himself known to his enemies, but another huge purpose of God throughout the book of Exodus is to reveal himself to his own people. His own people don't know them as they ought to. And so a main point of these chapters is that not only the Egypt and the nations need to know who is Yahweh, Israel needs to know first. And starting in, in um, chapter 6, verse 2, we read, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. El Shaddai. But by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So like we talked about last week, the sound of the name Yahweh had been known. It was used in Genesis, but only in this generation would its significance be established because the people of God were entering into a new era marked by redemption, and they would have to come to know that the very name of God implies that redemption is connected to redemption and deliverance. So the very name of Yahweh serves as a guarantee that the promise of deliverance will come to pass. And so he says his name and he reminds them of the promises again. What happened in Pharaoh's court doesn't even affect what God is going to do. His covenant promises are the same. He says, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. So some of us need to be reminded of God's promises of deliverance this morning. Maybe there's some habitual sin that we have to keep fighting or some agonizing relationship or some reality in your life that brings dread every time you think about it. And we've brought it to God. We have many times in prayer. We've tried to take the steps that we think he's calling us to take. We do see glimmers of light now and then, but then we just fall back into the pain and the despair again. We think, God, why won't you take away this impossible thing from me so that I can be free to do something great for you? But maybe the great thing he wants you to do is to trust him in the impossible thing. Now that may not feel like a very great accomplishment, but it is. It is 
a triumph of love for God that will be seen and known in the spiritual realms, even if those around us can't see what it cost us to keep trusting him in those times. He wants you to see his character clearly even when things aren't okay. He wants you to trust his faithfulness even now before that faithfulness has played out because do you think anyone really decides to honor him in a meaningful way when their lives just keep going from good to better? No, he reveals the beauty and the wonder of his character most profoundly amid the darkness. And verse 7 continues, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. These words, you will be my people, I will be your God, those are found many places throughout Scripture. Why? Why are they repeated so much? Because we need to hear them so much. Um, He says he will take us to be his people. And also, we know Yahweh's very name speaks of his presence. We talked about that last week. He kept saying to Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you. Often we have to deal with what seems like God's absence. We know his presence. We know his presence is part of the very definition of who he is. And yet, we have to hold to that amid what feels like his absence. Just like Moses did in that day on Pharaoh's court or when Moses had to go in front of all of his people and explain what had happened. But just because you don't see the whole picture in that moment, it doesn't make God's promise of his presence any less true. And those words, I will be your God, you will be my people, the final time when those are mentioned in Scripture, it's actually in um, Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that's where all this is going. There's, there's this larger story of God's deliverance that these events in Exodus are just getting us started on. It's like, like a preview. But in order for us to hear that promise clearly, I will be your God, you will be my people, a lot of times we have to feel our need of it. We have to feel our need of his presence before we can hear those words clearly. So in the midst of what looks like Moses' failure and God's apparent absence, we see that God is revealing evil for what it is. He's forming his servants amid adversity. He's revealing his own brightness against this backdrop of darkness. And lastly, in all of these things, God is playing the long game to bring glory to his name. God plays the long game for his own glory. So in his arrogance, Pharaoh had identified the the key question, who is Yahweh? And initially we might think, why did God let himself be mocked like that? Doesn't God care about his reputation? Oh yes, he does. Far more than Moses knew, far more than we ourselves realize. God's renown throughout the whole world, that is his driving purpose for everything he does. And that may sound egocentric, but it's not because he is truly good. And so making much of God, trusting God, finding life in God, that is humanity's greatest good. His glory and our welfare are flip sides of the same coin. So God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. 
and we will be the most satisfied when God is seen and celebrated. And that means it should get us very excited when God, when God promises to set the record straight. And he, he does that starting in chapter 6, verse 1. The momentum of the whole book hinges on this verse. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now God is mocking Pharaoh. In, in ancient Egypt, whenever the Pharaoh's deeds were recorded, it would be said, with a strong hand, he did this or that. With a strong hand, Pharaoh decisively won the battle. With a strong hand, Pharaoh ordered and built up the land. Well, here God is appropriating that language, and he's saying, with a strong hand, Pharaoh is going to do whatever I tell him to. It's kind of like saying, Muhammad Ali is going to float like a butterfly right out of contention. He's, his humiliation is going to be what stings like a bee. He's going to, Ali, shuffle into disgrace. He's going to rope-a-dope himself onto the floor of the ring. With a strong hand, Pharaoh will drive them out of the land, even though at this point he utterly refuses. We serve a God who definitely appreciates sarcasm. And so these chapters are setting up this ultimate showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh over the future of the people of God. And in verse 13, the Lord requires that Moses and Aaron go back and continue with the job. Our God was never knocked off of his course. Moses would go before Pharaoh many more times before the certain result was attained in exactly the way that God always anticipated it would be and designed it to be. And then even 40 years later, the surrounding nations would tremble in remembering what happened in Egypt. They would say, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted for Yahweh, your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So our God plays the long game for the sake of his own name. Now, we're not going to look in detail at the genealogical section uh, that's at the end of chapter 6. Its main point is just to confirm that Moses and Aaron are uh, true Israelites from the tribe of Levi, and that should get us pumped up that despite Moses' fear and weakness, God really is about to work through these two sons of slaves, and he's going to humiliate an empire. He's going to reveal the salvation of the living God in a way that is going to eventually impact all generations and cultures. And after the genealogy, verses 28 and 30, they actually essentially repeat Moses' fearful excuses that we see in verses 10 through 12. And that may seem like a strange way to kind of end this section. Like, okay, Moses is whining, then we've got a genealogy, and then Moses is whining again. <laughs> but I think what it's trying to do is emphasize that the deliverance that's about to unfold it's all God. It could never have come from Moses. God alone gets the glory for such a strange and seemingly impossible victory out of defeat from circumstances that had seemed to go from bad to hopeless. And no doubt Pharaoh had thought that he had taken care of this would-be deliverer, right? He had, he had turned his people against him quite effectively, and, and that would take care of it all. But soon Pharaoh would be surprised. And then, 1,500 years later, another tyrant, 
the greater tyrant, Satan, he would take care of another would-be deliverer, the greater Moses, Jesus, by turning his own people against him. They would betray him, abandon him, rule against him in a corrupt court. They would shout crucify him, but the evil ruler of this world would also discover that a seeming increase in the power of darkness is simply the moment before the dawn. So did becoming a Christian make your life harder and not easier as you had hoped? Have there been times when you feel like your steps of faith have been rewarded only with rejection and loneliness? Yes, we still do await final deliverance. But as as great as chapter 6, verse 1 is, God says something even better to us today. He doesn't just say, now you will see what I will do. He also says to us in his word, see what I have done. If you're struggling to obey God today, you don't need more willpower. You need to see God more, and specifically you need to see his deliverance that already has been revealed at the cross and the resurrection. You need to believe in the character of God that is revealed so clearly right there in history. And you need to trust him. Trust him even when trusting him on the surface seems to make things worse. So Lord, you know the circumstances in which each of us find ourselves, the ways in which we harbor disappointment at what you haven't done or the way that you have done things. We don't understand it. We don't always understand what our role is. We're trying to serve you, and it doesn't feel effective. God, meet us in those places. Remind us of your character, and give us faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.